This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Because if you can tell me what your habits are, I can tell you what sort of a person you are. I can tell you what your future looks like. But like I always say, life is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% what you do about it. The people who are most effective in the workplace believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past. When people don't believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past, they begin to disengage. You're listening to The Circuit of Success, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve success in every facet of life, only on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Now, your host, Brett Gilliland. Welcome to The Circuit of Success. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland, and today I've got Charlie Engel. Charlie, what's going on today? How are you? Man, I'm just loving life today. Got good weather. I'm going for a run this afternoon and, and uh, things are good. That's great. Well, your definition of run and my definition of run are probably two different things on what you're going to do today. Yeah, I'm just going to run like 50 miles. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I, most, most daily runs are like normal people, six, you know, six to 10 miles, somewhere in that ballpark. Oh, yeah. So, uh, normal, yeah. normal people. I like it. I like that. Well, man, you've got an unbelievable background. You've got, an, I mean, just an unreal story from you know documentaries to you're speaking with Tony Robbins, uh, the books, the running, you've been all over the world and we're going to dive into all that stuff. But if you can, if you could maybe just give us a little backstory on who Charlie Ingle is, what's made you the man you are today, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the accolades and the things you've done all around the world. Sure thing. No, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm really excited to be, uh, this is a great kind of conversation for me to have. Um, I grew up in North Carolina for the most part, uh, divorced parents, uh, only child. So kind of bounced back and forth. My parents were 18 when I was born. So gives a little perspective. Uh, my mother was a, as I like to say, a perpetual grad student. So the first 10 or 12 years of my life were spent with her while she was still in college. <laughs> and so it was a very, um, a very adult upbringing, as I like to say. And uh, while I enjoyed it as a kid, you know, it, it, it probably planted a few things uh, in my just psyche that, um, that found their way into my life later. And I went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill as a 17 year old freshman and I had, um, you know, I'd achieved a lot. I had, you know, for a high school student, good grades, lots of sports, student body president, dated a couple of cheerleaders. You know, I, I had a, a pretty stellar uh, career. I go to Carolina and um, I, find, I find out within a few days that um, I'm incredibly average. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was a shock, you know, because it's, it's tough. There were 4,000 other freshmen there who had the same resume and uh, knew how to actually study and do things. And I got lost. And um, I'll be 60 this year. So my, uh, my class uh, for high school was 1980. So in 1980, when I went to college, you could still drink at 18 years old. And I found drinking uh, as something that I really stood out as, which is not a good career vocation, but <laughs> basically I could just drink more than anybody else. And I sort of became, you know, for a while I became that guy. And uh, weirdly, I went to Carolina to play football. I never played, uh, but I was still pretty full of myself. And I went out for the basketball team at Carolina and, and I actually made the basketball team on the JV team. And Back then, Roy Williams, uh, the recently retired Carolina coach, was the JV coach. So he was my coach for a couple of years, and I got to play every day with Michael Jordan and James Worthy and some really amazing wow. players. So, you know, I, I had some stellar experiences in college, but by my junior year, you know, I drank my way out of college, basically, and uh to keep it short, I spent 10 years basically just bouncing around the country, getting a good job, becoming the top salesman, uh, fitness memberships, car dealerships, insurance companies, you name it. And then I would celebrate basically, as I like to say, and 
drink and drug my way to the bottom, uh, move to a new city, do it all over again. And at 29 years old, my first son was born. And, you know, I finally decided that I needed to make a change. I mean, there was no, uh, nobody was going to do it for me. I, I think I was expecting that my son or my boss or my wife was going to save me somehow. And I had a particularly traumatic six day binge that ended with, you know, the police searching my car and it was a mess. And I, and I realized at that point that nobody was coming to save me and that I needed to get busy doing it for myself. And um, I went to a recovery meeting that night. I went for a run the next day and I did those two things every day for the next three years. I went to a meeting and I went for a run for three straight years without missing a single day. And I started to build a life for myself. And, and I, I like to say that running saved my life. Um, and, and then it actually gave me a life. I turned it into a thing that has sort of dominated the rest of my life. That's incredible. So what were you doing at that time when you started that three-year journey? What, what were you working? What were you doing at that time? Yeah, I'd started a business of my own because that's the best way to drink on your own time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I was, this was a couple of years before I got sober. And it was a Funny enough, I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I lived in St. Louis for a while, and um, I, I was in. I started a company chasing hailstorms, so I became the biggest company uh, in the world chasing hailstorms and repairing hail damaged cars. And I had about fifty employees, and uh, there's a company there in St. Louis called uh, Dent Wizard, and ultimately I sold my company to Dent Wizard back in the day, and. You know, it was it was great. It was it was a very lucrative business. It still is today, 30 years later. And uh, but I traveled, you know, which wasn't conducive to staying sober, at least at yeah. least not for me. And so um, but, you know, I had I was a highly functioning drug addict alcoholic. And I, I, you know, I was the number one Toyota salesman in the country for a couple of years in a row selling seven or 800 cars a year. Um, you know, so I managed to, here's the thing, Brett, I felt like if I, if I achieved enough, then nobody would call me out on my behavior. Cause it's like, if you're the top salesman, nobody's going to fire you. That's actually right. not true by the way, <laughs> because eventually, eventually people get tired of your nonsense and, you know, and it's just not, no matter how much you're producing, it's not worth it. So talk to us. So, so you did that. And then what got you into these run? I mean, I, I pulled up your website here just to, so I can remember all the names of these things, but you, know, you got the bad water, one thirty-five ultra marathon. You've got the four deserts racing the planet series. I mean, you, you've gone from what I read, you've been at the highest peaks in the world and you've been, you've run to the lowest peaks of the world. And I was talking to my boys about that last night and I thought, man, how cool. I mean, what, what a life, what an adventure to think of where you were the dark days to what you're doing now. So talk to us about that, the change that was made and, and the thing, the choices you're making today. Yeah, Brett, I appreciate that question. And I mean, I, I like to say on stage that um, uh, at any time that, I mean, we're all on the same journey, right? Of low places and high points. Yeah. I think my, for whatever reason, I've had a lot more time really up here and I've had a lot of time way down here. And I haven't spent a tremendous amount of time in the middle because I'm not a, I'm not a guy that is comfortable just kind of um, killing time. You know what yeah. I mean? I, yeah, I want sure. to be doing stuff. And uh, I'll be 60 in September this year. And, and I'm reminded that the clock is ticking regularly. And so I, I think that what stops a lot of people from taking the, the risks, and some people would say I've taken a lot of risks in my life, and some physical, some in business, like, otherwise, what's the point? I, I actually don't understand. I don't understand the mentality of the person, for example, that runs 250 marathons. I, I mean, frankly, I've run a whole lot of marathons myself, but I don't want to keep doing the exact same thing over and over because I already know that I can do that. It doesn't mean that I don't get some enjoyment out of it, but I've got to throw some things in the mix that I am totally over my head and I have no doubt if I'm capable of doing it. And I think that what's interesting is my, 
everybody listening to this right now falls into a couple categories. You either have struggled with addiction yourself, you have a family member who's struggled with addiction, you have a close friend who's struggled with, like nobody escapes this. Like we all know someone who has, who has struggled. It's seen as like a negative, uh, a, an affliction, a disease of sorts. I contend that my addictive and even obsessive nature, that's all the best parts of me. What, it's what makes me good at things. Mm -hmm. And as long as I point that energy towards things that are positive and uh, that I'm passionate about, like I would never, I would never trade that. I'd never want to eliminate that part of me. And I think that that's the trick with people is finding, of course, that thing that you are passionate about. I mean, you're a successful guy. You speak to a lot of successful people. I would argue that everybody you speak to has a, there's an addictive piece to their lives. Certainly, sure. certainly obsessive. Like if you're not obsessive, like it's the last thing you think of at night. And it's the first thing you think of when you where our eyes wake up in the morning, like that obsession to do the thing that you're doing. I think that's been my my gift since I got sober is I've started businesses. I've failed. I've succeeded. I've done big, big adventures uh, in 45 countries around the world and, you know, set a few records and, and done some wild and crazy things. But uh, I wouldn't have that any other way. So how do you do that now with the timing? So you've obviously, you got a family, right? You got a family, you've got work. How do you find time? I'm looking at the Badwater 135. It says it's, it's kind of the, the toughest race in the world. And it says you would agree with that. So, so how do you do that? How do you find the time for it between life and busyness to train for these things and then mentally prepared for it? Yeah. It's a, I mean, I think that you, you nailed it right there. It is about, the, fun, the time is already there and it is about time management for sure. And like, I, I want to point out that I made a decision about 10 years ago to um, sleep eight hours a night, <laughs> no matter what. And it sounds like a, a weird thing to like call my foundation in life, but I recognize that I basically like most successful people was going through life incredibly sleep deprived yep. and probably dehydrated. There you go. See, I see what you're doing there. On cue, and right so, there. <laughs> and and I mean seriously, and I and I changed my way of thinking about um, sleep. And so that's uh, a it's a funny thing to say as my foundation. People would assume that I focus on training. I don't focus on training. I focus on health. So what I want to mm -hmm. do if I'm going to prepare for bad water, it's 135 miles in the hottest place on the planet in the second week in July, which is the hottest week of the year. The surface temperatures are 200 degrees. But I think the thing is, I, I, the trick is I, I flipped the switch years ago and I made a decision that I would do the hardest events in the world. And like if I planned a training run today and it's thunder and lightning and it's raining or it's snowing and hail like i'm going out in that i'm not changing my plans because the weather isn't cooperating because what happens if it rains on race day or what happens if right. it's freezing on race day like you don't get to pick and choose the circumstances that are present on the day that you're doing something whether it's launching a business or a family or whatever like it it's just going to happen so you've got to be prepared so i think mentally, I made a decision years ago, and it's, there's no evidence that it's true. It's just that I believe it, that I want, especially in races, I want the hardest uh, circumstances there can be. I want on race day for it to be the hottest it can be, or the coldest it can be, or the wettest, or like, because I think I'm going to do better in those circumstances. Have, let me and, interrupt real quick. Have you always yeah. been like that? Because I mean, whether it's running 135 miles in the desert or a business thing, right? We can all have that self-defeating thinking or, you know, in your world, yeah. that 135 miles and 200 degree temperatures uh, of the surface, I'm going to die. I mean, I mean yeah. <laughs> things can come through our mind, right? So how do yeah. you, how do you get through the mess and then just continue to go one step at a time again, thinking about business or running 135 yeah. miles. So you just said something, Brett, that is so important and foundational to everything I ever do and talk about. And it's that one step at a time. And look, we, we all know the, the like addiction recovery saying one day at a time. 
that there's a lot of truth always in cliches. And I'm, I'm going to back into another, well, or I don't know if we're going to talk about the Sahara Desert. We probably are. But like in, in Badwater, in Death Valley, there is, a, um, there is a temptation to be thinking about the finish line. And there is a fair, there's no money, but there's a fair amount of glory, right? In my, in my world of ultra running, like if you do well at Badwater, and I've been top like five there five times. And so I've, done, I've never won the race, but I've done quite well. And especially for my talent, I kind of do better than I'm actually able to at, yeah. at Badwater. But the first time I did it, I was so focused on getting to the finish line. There were a lot of people supporting me and I felt so much pressure to do that, that I really kind of screwed up my, my race. I went too fast early. I made all the mistakes that a rookie would make, even though I'd been running for years. And I recognized that you know, the only miles that I could run were the ones right in front of me. And I think it's a good analogy for business and for life. If we get caught up in outcomes and always being attached to that outcome, it, it makes us miserable, first of all, while we're on the journey. <laughs> and yeah. it also inhibits our ability to actually get to the finish line. So what I do on a daily basis, and I, I'm, I mean this with my whole heart, whether it's business, I'm launching a business right now and I'm freaked out about it because it's another business, yet another business that I'm pretty unqualified to actually launch. But I trust the fact that if I focus on the things that I'm good at and that I know how to do, allow other people to aid me and help me, that I at least have a more than average chance of being successful. And that's the way I look at these big races too. Yeah, it's but it is. I mean, I think the mental side of it is that that one step at a time. I know when we were launching our investment firm, you know, a little over eight years ago, there was nights you're up till midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and and you know you're trying to get things done. But there is a passion about it. But you can also be scared to death. And I think what I've learned is you just got to keep walking. You got to keep going. You can't give up. Where my mental block is is on the running side. So, uh, you know, I've done I've done triathlons. I've never done like an Ironman or half Ironman or anything. But you know is the mental block that I have to go out and run. Like when I hear you say, I'm going to go out and run 50 miles or 135 miles or what you're doing on your 30th anniversary being sober, 30 hours of straight running. Like I can't even wrap my mind around that. And that's why I wanted to chat today is like, again, just what's that mental edge that you've got to help people like me bust through our comfort zone. But yeah, I mean, what's interesting is just talking to you for a minute, you absolutely, you know, you, and you know this about yourself, you have the ability to do any of those things that you want to do because you've done them in business and in other places. And they're really similar. And I think the danger becomes with physical stuff because it, because it hurts yeah. <laughs> or it's uncomfortable physically that we want to be like, we're only going to enter the race if we're entirely prepared. Imagine if every business you ever launched or let's even take family. That's a better example. Like uh, you have kids. Yeah, four kids. So you got four kids. Before you had your first one, were you prepared? No. In any way, shape, or form, you might have thought you were. Yeah. Like, or you know, you we we want to like have the car paid off and the house paid down. And we want to have a certain amount of money in the bank. We want none of that stuff happens. Like, yeah. I mean, if we waited for those things to happen, if we were truly prepared, then we would never have kids. We'd never launch a business. We'd never enter an Ironman. So I like to say with physical things, especially if you have a, a basic athletic mentality, um, which is stubbornness along with maybe a little bit of talent, like preparation is overrated. I mean, mm. yes, if you're trying to win the race, of course, there is a formula for that. But to go out and participate, like right now, this minute, if you said, I'm going to do an Ironman before this year is over, that's a, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bait you here. Um, then you absolutely, I, there's no doubt that this fall, you were, you're going to think, no way can I prepare for that. And come race day, you'd think, man, what was I thinking? But with the right approach to it, with a slow and steady approach, you're not trying to break any records. You just want to be part of this and do it. Then you would get through the race. And I, I do actually I take a lot of comfort in that with all aspects of my life. Cause I am, 
I am constantly over my head and out of my ability range in almost everything that I do. Yet, I continue to get to the start line and of, of every part of my life and, uh, and take on whatever challenge there is. Yeah. And I, I love that too. You do just have to show up in one of the circuits of the circuit of success is action. We got to take action yeah. and it doesn't mean you're ready. It doesn't mean your business plan is perfect. But again, we talked about it one step at a time, show up, do the things you can control, right? Control the controllables. I, I call it your comfort zone callus. We build these little calluses up on our hands and whether it's public speaking or running a race or doing something in business, we just have to do it and be okay with getting you know, smack right in the face, right? I, I mean, go that. play in traffic. I love that. And I, and I want to say one other thing, Brett, you know what I tell audiences all the time? We think that other people are watching us way more than they are. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, exactly. we think that somehow if we're not successful at something or whatever, that it's going to make us look bad. I'm yeah. sorry, dude. Nobody gives a shit. No, I mean, not, not really. Um, I mean, we are essentially self centered beings and we care more about how we look than other people actually care about what yeah. we're, you know, some people are actually out there pulling against us probably, you know, maybe they're a rival business or whatever. Yeah. And some are pulling for us, but in general, whether we succeed or fail, like in an Ironman, is it gonna, it has almost zero impact on the world. It affects us and we, and you and I know, if we shrink away from the challenge of stepping to the start line to take on something that might actually make us look bad, then we're selling ourselves short. Yep. Yep. So talk to us about how, how you end up with Matt Damon and you guys are doing a documentary. I mean, you know, one of the biggest actors in the world today and uh, has some great stuff and, and here you are teaming with him. Yeah. That guy just won't leave me alone, man. He calls me all the time. <laughs> it's all over you, right? Like, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. So, um, okay, so super brief version of this. So as you heard, I got my act together back in 1992. I got sober. Flash forward to the early 2000s. And I'm, I'm actually, uh, I became the senior producer for a TV show called ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Oh, yeah. So you probably watched that show. So I, I worked on the first several seasons of that show. And uh, another job that I was completely unqualified for um, the story of all that and how it happened is in, is in my book, Running Man, if anybody, uh, it's, it's on Amazon, easy to find. Um, but I came up with this idea that I was going to be the first person to run across the Sahara Desert. And there's a story there too. There's way too many stories. For no, no, with no evidence at all, I just latched on to this idea because no one had ever done it before. I was doing big races all around the world, really hard stuff. And, and just a stranger actually said to me, hey, have you ever thought about running across the Sahara? And I, I basically said, that's a dumb idea. <laughs> you have to be an idiot to do that. Yeah. So, of course, being an idiot, I put together this uh, idea and I got a meeting with a, a director named James Mall. And this is this is the audacious part of what we have to do sometimes. Like this director had won the Academy Award for Best Documentary two years earlier. And like, I had no business having a meeting with him, none, I mean, zero. But I got the meeting, I show up, I make my pitch, worst pitch in history. Like I'm 20 minutes late for a 30 minute meeting. I like verbally vomit on his desk, it's terrible. He <laughs> and did you know him or did you just cold call him? I mean, how'd that even go down? Well, I did get an introduction and that, okay. that was a key that I, that I left out. A friend of mine knew this director, James Yeah, Long. But that's part of the deal, right? Yeah. And use the, I am not shy about, you know, no. I connect people all the time and I ask other people for connections all the time. And I'm, I'm not, anybody who says they got to some level all by themselves. I you can't consider. see it, but I wrote down right down here. I could already tell you're that guy. I literally wrote down referrals. Like who is he going to introduce me <laughs> to, to get on the podcast, right? Because oh, yeah. that is, I think yeah. about even being a financial advisor when I was 23 years old, it all worked through referrals. Dude, I got, I, got, I got more people that I'll connect you with. So I'm excited <laughs> to do that. So I get connected to this director. He says, yes, I want to do it. Which just like, I'm like, uh-oh, I might actually have to do this. A yeah. week later, he calls me. He's like, hey, remember I told you we need a production partner to, to make this. I mean, he's just the director. Yeah, he's, and he's yeah. like, I just hung up with Matt Damon, 
who I've been talking to about trying to partner on something for years. And he loves this idea. He wants to executive produce the project and he wants to be the narrator. Would that be okay with you? And I, <laughs> I kid you not, you've talked to me enough to know already that I actually said this. I said, James, I was like, dude, I was really hoping for somebody better, but yeah, I guess we can go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So then I had two Academy Award winners attached to this. Uh, and ultimately Hans Zimmer ended up doing the score for the movie. And he's the most famous music producer in Hollywood yeah. history. So I end up with three Academy Award winners attached to a project about me running across sand and uh, riveting stuff. And, <laughs> you know, we recognized that telling the story was going to be very complicated. And what's funny, and I think this is a good place to even just say this one thing. I'll never forget a year and a half later, I'm on the coast of Senegal in the Sahara Desert on, in the Atlantic Ocean. And James Mall, this Academy Award winning director is sitting next to me on a bench and we're just talking the day before all this craziness is gonna start. And he's like, so what do you think this movie is gonna be about? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I thought it was the funniest question ever because it showed that I was there with the right person. If you show up, I mean, and my answer to him was pretty simple. I'm like, hey, if we make it all the way across the Sahara Desert, I'm pretty sure some, sit, some shit's going to happen. Yeah. As long as we have the camera turned on, we're in good shape. Yeah. And like the stories are there and, and the experiences are there and they're going to continue to happen no matter what. We just have to make sure that we show up every single day and do the part that we can do. I love that, man. It's incredible. So then that happens and you get to meet Matt Damon and, and hang with him and learn about the deal or what? Yeah, when I first met him, is actually uh, flew to New York and uh, he was in the city for a week and I think he was shooting something and um, we went on a run together, 10, 10 miles through Manhattan. Uh, it was a very, very funny run. I always laugh about it because he was wearing a ball cap and I could see people's faces. We would run by them and there would be this like, desperate searching of their minds like who that guy who is and like we'd get halfway we get a block away and somebody would go Matt Damon <laughs> and <laughs> nobody ever yelled my name Charlie yeah, right right but uh you know and it was it was a great experience he turned out to be as I like to say even today and we talk occasionally um because I there's a nonprofit piece that we started I'll, I'll mention in a second but the thing about Matt is he, he literally is the guy that you, that you see. He's the guy you want to have a beer with or a cup of coffee. Like you don't see him getting in trouble in the tabloids. You don't see any yeah. just nonsense. The guy just shows up. He's a genuine, nice man. He does his stuff. And, uh, you know, he's pulled in a million different directions all the time as, as someone in his place would be. And he's just the real deal. That's amazing. What's the name of the documentary and where can people find it? Yeah, it's called Running the Sahara. Very imaginative name. <laughs> and uh, the best place to get it now is actually just on iTunes. You can get it on iTunes or on Roku. It was on uh, Netflix for years and it was on Showtime and it made the rounds on ESPN and other places. But now it's, hey, for a couple bucks, you can watch me yell at people and run across uh, the desert. And it's it's still ranked as one of the best, you know, sort of running. It's not about running. Neither is my book. My book is called Running Man and has almost nothing to do with running. <laughs> right. So what, what did you learn about that, though? When you are running across, that, that, that's probably what the show is about, right? I yeah. mean, oh, it, yeah. it's, it's not about running in the sand, like you said, but th this yeah. is the challenge. So what did you learn running through the Sahara Desert? Yeah, well, you know. And real quick, sorry, can you give us perspective? How far is that? Yeah, so I ran um 5000 miles from Senegal across Senegal, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Libya and then Egypt. Yeah, like who 5, knew Africa 1000 miles. Who knew Africa was that big? I probably should have checked the maps a little closer. <laughs> wait, wait, say that again. I got to run how many miles? And how long did that so take ran, you to do that? I ran two marathons a day for 111 consecutive days without taking a day off across the world's biggest desert. So we're going to say that again, because that's mind blowing Two marathons a day for 111 days. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it just basically shows that, um, you don't have to be bright to be an ultra marathoner. 
Yes. <laughs> you know the guy James, uh, what they call him, the Iron Cowboy? Did you yeah, I know that? that guy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I mean, he did, what do you do? Like a hundred, he did a hundred and something, 101. Uh, he did 101 Iron Man's. Yeah. I think that was last year during yeah. COVID. Yeah. 101 Iron Man's in mean, one day. I mean, you guys are nuts. Well, you know what? And his, it, it's interesting. I've, I've watched some of his stuff. We've talked once or twice. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know him super well, so I don't know his real, you know, he's a little more into the physical piece of it. Like he, he loves that piece. I'm yeah. going to tell you the truth. I don't even like running all that much. Like I like what running does for me. I like the vehicle that running is. It's for me, it's about cultural exploration. I wouldn't be interested in doing what James did because he did it like he did his 101 Ironmans on the same course every single day, basically yeah. in his neighborhood. And physically that is an astounding and mentally too, frankly, because yeah. I don't know anything more boring. But I mean, I, I want to, I want to see the next place. I want to, I mean, and actually this is a thing I'll throw in here in right into the mix here. And maybe you saw it on my website, but next year I'm going to go from the Dead Sea. Uh, and maybe am I jumping ahead on the script? No, here? no, 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 no. This is I'm, perfect. I'm going to go from the Dead Sea. I'm going to stand up paddleboard across the Dead Sea from Israel to Jordan. I'm going to do a free dive in the middle of the Dead Sea. I'm going to run 2,000 miles across the Arabian desert to the tip of Oman, where I'm going to row 1,000 miles across the Indian Ocean. I'm going to mountain bike. Well, I'll land in Mumbai, India, and I'm going to mountain bike from Mumbai to the base of Mount Everest. And then it's just like two or three miles after that, but <clears throat> straight up. And so a literal lowest place to highest point. And for me, not speaking about anyone else like that's what i need i am i am fed by the knowledge that i'm going to meet incredible people i'm going to uh see amazing places i'm going to face hardship out there in the world not in a controllable situation you know i'm gonna stuff's gonna happen every day but you yeah. know bikes are going to stop working my body's going to stop working we're going to get stopped at the border by governments we're gonna like all those things that that happen are going to happen and that's that's what feeds me i mean i, I literally don't even know what to say about that i mean to re we'll have to listen to this again just to recap what the heck you're gonna go do so how many how many total miles was that that'll be about 4500 miles also so apparently oh, I'm not simple then of, simple yeah. man you've already done five i mean game, why, why, right? yeah <laughs> Why are you yeah. thinking and so small? I'm adding, in, I'm adding in some rowing and some biking and, and of course, mountaineering. And, you know, the, the goal quite simply is my, my wife essentially said, look, you know, you're not allowed to die on Everest. Uh, that was kind of a rule. And it doesn't, <laughs> I mean, look, to be serious, we both know, we all know there's inherent risk in something like that and things can happen. But generally yeah. speaking, um, health if i can continue to just be healthy and that's why i focus on health and not training they're, they're different and and health is sleep and hydration and nutrition i've been I, i'm not trying to promote my lifestyle but i have been vegan for about 23 years and for me it works really well doesn't work for everybody sure um but most of the people that it doesn't work for have never tried it. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I do focus on all of those aspects. And I know if I do those on a daily basis, then it gives me the best possible chance of being successful. And with you being in quote unquote shape for all the stuff you're doing from running to diving, to swimming, to climbing. I mean, are you, do you ratchet it up over the next 12 months? of training I mean, I will to a certain degree but this kind of if it was bad water like we talked about earlier absolutely because i'm trying to peak at a particular time dead sea to everest is going to take me almost five months and so there's no like just to give you an example it's going to take me 45 <laughs> days to run across the arabian desert so no matter how much rowing i've done in preparation that rowing uh, fitness is gone by the time I reach the Indian Ocean. You know what yeah. I mean? So, oh, yeah. So there's no point in like trying to peak. I need to be good technically at all of these things. And I'm already a good 
runner and a good mountain biker. Uh, I'm not a rower per se. I've rowed. So it's something I have to work on. Hell, even the first stage, it's 11 miles across the, the Dead Sea. And I'm going to do a free dive to the lowest point I can reach. I, I'm not a stand-up paddleboarder and I'm not a free diver. So those are, but again, as we, you and I talked about a little while ago, preparation, preparation is a killer. It's a buzzkill, as I like to yeah. say. You know, and I don't mean you do stupid things. The, the, the point is over-preparing and having to be perfect for everything that you do. I might be terrible out there on the, and it's not, of course, I'm going to train stand-up paddleboarding before I go. I'm going right. to make sure that I'm adept, but I'm not going to be an expert, I'm, but I'm still going to go do it, right? And, and, you know, I think that the mentality of that is important for people to remember. You know, you, you don't over, don't outthink yourself. You can outsmart yourself about anything. Yeah, I mean, just even the paddleboarding. And so how deep will you actually dive? Hmm. <clears throat> Well, the Dead Sea, as most people know, is one of the saltiest bodies of uh, water on the planet. So we, I have a, a physicist helping me. And so it's going to take about 75 pounds of extra weight just to get me below the surface. Wow. And you know what? I, I say this almost as a, as a joke, and I don't want to, um, I'm doing the, the, the uh, free dive because as I say, if anybody ever wants to come do this exact adventure after me, I want to make it as hard on them as I possibly can. Therefore, <laughs> they're going to have to go. I may only go, you know, if I can go 40 or 50 feet down, I'd be happy. If I could go 100 feet down, I'd be really happy. So it's literally a game time decision as you're going. Yes. And I mean, you know, some will depend on the, the conditions I am. I started doing breath work about a year ago and I've gone from... Uh, not that I'm, uh, well, this is relevant. I, you know, I've gone from being able to hold my breath probably a minute or so comfortably to almost six minutes at this point. And so, and that has come through, you know, doing a tremendous wow. amount of just, uh, breath work sessions. And, and it's another for longevity sake. And Tony Robbins uh, understands this now. Um, and there was a great book that came out last year called breath, which I highly recommend yeah. by James Nesbitt. And, you know, the single greatest determiner of longevity, the single greatest determiner of longevity is lung health. Unfortunately, they only know that through about a million autopsies that were specifically geared towards, you know, checking out, you know, all the things that autopsies do, but lung health is is a an amazing determiner of how long you're going to live no matter all the rest of your lifestyle choices so you know i've really become an advocate for um for doing you know active breath work with you know an instructor it's easy to find there's 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 a million things that you can do yeah and i think too so when you when you apply this back to your life your quote-unquote normal life uh this is i don't know if there is such a thing as normal life for any of us but when you come back to the day-to-day -day work right and you're doing business and you got to do i mean i don't know if you get paid to go for five months to do all these things if you get sponsors and that's how you're able to do that but like what what is what are those foundations for success for you on normal everyday life yeah i mean we have a of course um i'm closing in i don't want to announce it here you might have to have me back on but i'm closing in on a production deal in about two weeks with a, a very big uh production company and um i'm partnered with deepak chopra i think i told you that yeah. on a couple of things i head up a program called freedom from addiction for the chopra foundation um all that is to say i have some pretty great reach when it comes to sponsors I mean, this is, it's an expensive undertaking. So, oh, there yeah. be, and there has to be ROI, you know, nobody's giving, <laughs> nobody's giving us money. The world doesn't work that way. So, um, and not to say that there aren't some, some generous folks out there who are helping to support this. Um, I'm happy to say, and this will be another connection that I think you're going to be interested in. Um, I'm an advisor now. And, and look, Brett, you should understand my goal in life is to be um, a member of a lot of clubs that I can never afford to be part of. <laughs> I love it. I love it. 
And, and so I am an advisor for a group called R360. I am their sort of wellness and uh, adventure advisor. And they're sort of, they, very interesting group of high net worth individuals. Um, 100 million is the minimum uh, net worth to actually join this very exclusive club. And so um, a lot of these folks came out of a couple other organizations. I think we, we have a, I, I, I peeked at LinkedIn and saw a couple of mutual connections we have uh, in Tiger 21 and some other places. And um, so all that is to say, this has been a lifetime for me of creating connections. We, we talked about it briefly yeah. and those connections have allowed me, people see me over time, they trust my passion and my energy and what my motivation is. And therefore I am able to get support from people who really are doing it out of generosity as much as ROI. They'd like to have their money back, but they understand that uh, uh, an adventure like this isn't just about getting money back. It's about yeah. having an experience. So I'm taking groups of people to the Dead Sea at the beginning. I've got a group coming to Everest Base Camp to meet me. Through Deepak Chopra, I'm going to be meeting with the Dalai Lama in India while I'm crossing wow. India. So I'm bringing people to have experiences because, again, that's that's what this is all about, is yeah. having these amazing, uh, eye-opening, real-life experiences out there in the world because that, that, for me, is the payoff. That is incredible, man. I mean, think of the preparation, the work, the effort that goes into this, the teamwork. I mean, again, applying all this to business, we can learn so much from everything that you're doing there. Yeah. And just not being afraid, you know, so this <laughs> business, um, are you familiar with whoop at all? There you go. Right there. Uh, so I am now on whoops, uh, advisory board. And so in full disclosure, so I am biased, um, It's phenomenal, but I am, um, launching a business that basically is around addiction and recovery. So I piloted a study with Johns Hopkins, and this treatment center I mentioned earlier called Ashley Addiction Treatment Center up in Maryland, where I'll be celebrating my 30 years clean and sober uh, this July. I piloted this study. So right now, for the first time ever, there are whoop bands going on to patients the day that they check into treatment. So that we wow. can, I mean, you already yeah. know what whoop does. And because you think about the way this works in all aspects of, of coaching, so my business is really going to be a coaching business. Normally, you have to ask your patient, athlete, person, whatever. You have to yeah. ask them, how's it going? What are you doing? Did you do that workout I told you? How's your sleep? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Well, with Whoop, I don't have to ask those questions. Right. I, can, right. I can see all of that. So instead, the conversation starts with you, Brett. It's like, dude. I see that two nights in a row, you, you had your highest sleep numbers and HRV and your workouts were spot on, like keep doing that, you know, or the opposite, especially with people in, in early addiction recovery, I view it as a tool where I can actually predict relapse. And that's what I say all the time, because I can see trouble brewing. <laughs> if yeah. a person isn't sleeping and they're not exercising and they're not doing these things, like they're setting themselves up for when they do hit a real emotional bump, they're really at risk of relapsing. And if I can see that coming, then I can stop it. It's amazing. Yeah. So uh, maybe that's one connection. Will Ahmed, I've been trying to get that guy on the, uh, on the podcast forever. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm, I'm not biased because I'm not paid by whoop. But I mean, I can't tell you people have gotten whoops because we multiple people have been on here talking about it. I mean, what it does for me just to understand for my sleep to even if you have a couple beers. Right. Yeah. I mean, the recovery yeah. is brutal compared yeah. to not having a couple beers, you know, and so it's, do you it's have, I'm going to ask you a on the spot question. Do sure. you have anybody? Do you have a coach? Do you have anybody helping you with that? Uh, I do not. No. Uh, gonna, I, I mean, I've had a business talk. coach. Okay. I would love talk to. Off, we'll talk offline because, you know, again, I go back two years with Whoop. And when I first wore the Whoop, I was very excited for a few months. 
And I really enjoyed it. But I, I admit, I reached a point where I got a little, I don't want to say bored with it, but you know, it just, yeah. it was just information. And what I found was when I got a coach for myself, and by when I say coach, coach is about count accountability. And you yeah. already know this. It's not that I don't know how to do a lot of these things, but I need someone out there in the world that cares about how I'm doing it and whether I'm doing what I need to be doing. And, and so a coach allowed me to be accountable. And sometimes for me, cause I am a classic over trainer. So what I learned with a coach is he's like looking at me, like my recovery number would be 20% and I go for a 15 mile run. He's like, what are you doing? It's like, are you just stupid? Like he literally <laughs> asked me that question a couple of times. I'm like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And, and so slowly I've come to this place where I understand whole health and how it plays a role in, in, in overall health. Yeah. Um, so when you hear me say, so you can see if you're, I raise my microphone, uh, F greater than P right here. So it's future greater than your past. It's, it's our firm's mission statement. It's, it's my own personal mission statement is to help people achieve a future greater than their past. And it doesn't mean somebody's past is bad. It just means I think we're all, especially people listen to podcasts, they want a future better than their past, right? So yeah. when you hear me say that, uh, what comes to mind for you? Man. What comes to mind? Okay, so I'm going to get highly personal for two seconds. And and this is a, because uh, life is hard, you know? Mm -hmm. So my wife right now has had a very, very serious cancer for four years. Mm -hmm. I am her primary caretaker. So everything that you've heard, I'm also like my daily existence here at the house is about you know, helping my wife. I, I travel a fair amount. So we're always managing like, who is her, are her parents going to help? Is someone else coming in? Is she going to go stay with her folks when I'm gone? Whatever. You know, it, it's very hard. So the future, you know, what I always say is um, the future is still foundationally in one day at a time. Yeah. <laughs> and so while I, I am balancing right now, doing things like I continue to make plans for going to the Dead Sea to Everest next year. And my wife encourages me very much to do that. But we all know that life happens. And yeah. there's a certain set of circumstances where I may not get to do what I want to do, or, or it may not happen on the time frame that I want it to happen. And so future greater than the past, what I think that really means to me is I want to continue to uh, explore and, and I do say, I, I stole it from North Face years ago, never stop exploring. It's so important to me, both emotionally, physically, like exploring, like literally out there in yeah. the world, but also emotionally through things like breath work, through doing things that are uncomfortable to me and, uh, and explore not only my own existence, but where I fit in the world and also emotionally. My wife was a former professional beach volleyball player. She was a pro cyclist. She's reduced to, in the last four years, she can't walk across the room without assistance. So, and we've been married for eight years. And so the life that we plan together isn't happening right now. You know, it may or may not happen in the future. But the point is, you find a way if you are determined enough to just stay grounded and stay in the moment and the future will present itself the way it's supposed to. I, I will, I, I know we got to get off in just a second. I will say this. I, I start almost every talk I ever give with the saying or with saying that I hate the saying things happen for a reason. <laughs> I don't believe things happen for a reason. I think that's a, that's a cop out. It's, it's like salve on a wound Nothing happens for a reason. Things happen, good and bad, to everyone. What you do about it <laughs> will determine the reason. So the reason is, is discovered. It's learned down the road. It doesn't magically present itself to you. You know, like things happen. Yeah. People get sick. We lose jobs. We have car accidents. We get injured on a run. Like 
there's no magic in that, but what we do next is what matters. Yeah, man. I can continue to go on and on and on, Charlie. This is phenomenal. Uh, tell our listeners, where do they find more of you and where can we follow you in this journey, man, as you go from the, the, the deepest point in the world to the highest point in the world? Yeah. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. The, the simplest thing to do at this point is just go to my website and it's just my name, charlieingle.com. Um, I am E-N-G-L-E, 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 right. CharlieEngel.com. And I'm active on Instagram. Uh, I'm active on pretty active on LinkedIn. There's going to be a lot more info on LinkedIn about my 30 year anniversary run. And I say that because I'm going to run for 30 hours and I'll have about a thousand people in person, including Deepak Chopra and some other dignitaries. But I'm, I'm going to have about 10,000 people virtually joining me for some portion. And the point is not to honor my sobriety, but to honor something in yourself yeah. that's important to you. You could walk for three hours. You could run for 10 miles. You can do a marathon, whatever it is you want. But it's all going to be raising money for addiction recovery research primarily, because if you've seen the statistics, we've had more overdose deaths in the last year. And if you have kids just like you do uh, and I do, we all worry about, you know, statistically speaking, you know, one of them is going to suffer from uh, some form of mental wellness issue. So charlieingle.com and you can buy my book there also. Um, you can see links to a lot of the talks I've given a lot of the writing I've done for runner's world and and other places. And I'm also a super easy person to reach as you well know. So, uh, if you want to talk about addiction or running, uh, I welcome your listeners to reach out to me. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Charlie. It's been a great talk and I I hope everybody listening to this can really apply it to their life, right? Even if they're not running across the desert, um, they may be running down the hallway to a meeting and a lot of the stuff that you talk about and will continue to talk about is is there for us, man. So I appreciate it. It's been awesome having you. Truly my pleasure. All right, brother. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.